0: We are 10 days into the new year, many of us treat the new year as a fresh start, uh, and one way that this approach makes itself evident is through resolutions. I won't tell you that statistically more than half of people make, who make resolutions fail to keep them by sometime next week. Happy Monday. Um, we, we've, we've started a new year, and, and we're, we're ready for the year that lies ahead. Most of us are, anyway. Anyway. Now, I, I have to confess something, and, and maybe I'm feeling the way I do uh, because I've been reading Psalm 10 all week. And, and here's, here's what I want to confess. I'm already over the newness of 2016. I'm, I'm already over the newness of 2016. Ten days into the new year, and I'm over the newness of the new year. Um, what a downer for a sermon introduction, right? <laughs> um, well, he, hear me out, uh, because while I'm over the newness of 2016, I have a greater longing for everything that comes after this moment than I've ever had before. I'm, I'm over the new year in this world, but I'm more ready than ever for this world to be renewed. Renewed. In the passage of scripture that we're going to look at together this morning, the the psalmist looks out on the world and he sees wickedness around him. And he sees sees wickedness and pain and affliction. He sees what we saw last year and what has already crept into this new year. And and this is what I've been reading and thinking about this week. Ten days have gone by in this new year, and more than 10,000 days have gone by since the psalmist wrote this psalm and there is still sin and wickedness and suffering in this world. There is still sin and wickedness in my heart and I'm ready for it to be gone. I'm ready for the day when I don't have to hear about a couple who's 36 weeks pregnant and they deliver a stillborn. I'm ready for the day when I don't have to worry about my brothers and sisters in Christ getting cancer. I'm, I'm ready for the day when bones don't break. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the Lord Jesus to come and to make all things new. And, and the truth of Psalm 10 makes me more hopeful than ever that Jesus will come and make all things new. Because it proclaims this. The Lord is king forever and ever. Because the Lord is king, I can entrust myself to him. Because the Lord is king, I can trust that he's in control. Because the Lord is king, I I can trust that he sees all things, knows all things, and governs all things. This is the truth that I hope you see And rejoice in, in Psalm 10. The Lord is King. He reigns. And one day He will put an end to sin and suffering and grief. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 10. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find Psalm 10 beginning on page 451. 451. And while you're turning there, let me offer uh, a little bit of background for our study. The Psalms, as you may know, they're they're a wonderful collection of prayers and poems and songs of the ancient people of God. Often they were meant to be used by the, the people of Israel in, in their corporate worship. They are simple and profound and teach us something of the breadth and depth of the emotional experience of God's people. If you haven't spent much time in the Psalms, then i encourage you to consider making them a regular part of your Bible reading, especially uh, if you're ever experiencing different emotions toward God and the events that are occurring in your life. The Psalms can help give you voice to your sorrow and to your joy, uh, to your thanks and to your grief. The Psalms, though, are, are something more than a good book for our personal devotions. They are not only hymns of worship and prayers of the afflicted, they are also prophetic promises of God's Messianic King. In other words, they play an important role in the storyline of the Bible in pointing us to Jesus Christ. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking and talking to a few disciples. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said this. Jesus said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms are about the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not all about Him in the same way. Some are about Him in that they give us words to confess our sin and so reveal our need for Jesus. We'll think about that, Lord willing, next week in Psalm 51. Some are about the creative power of, the, of God the Father, who, of course, we know created through the Son and the Spirit. Still others are particularly focused on God's King and that Israelite King serves as a type and shadow of God's ultimate King, Jesus Christ. For, for example, the, the apostles would quote the Psalms like Peter did in Acts chapter 2 and say that King David, he prophesied about Jesus. Psalm 10 is about King Jesus in that its conclusion reminds us that one day King Jesus will return. And in the words of Acts chapter 17 verse 31, he will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 10 teaches us that part of Jesus' judgment on the last day will include punishing the wicked and so fully and finally relieving the earthly oppression of the poor and the afflicted and the righteous. And if you want a kind of a one-sentence summary of what Psalm 10 is about, here's here's my one-sentence summary. One day God will judge the wicked and restore the righteous. It's that simple. One day God will judge the wicked and restore the righteous. with this in mind, we're going to study Psalm 10 in in two sections under two headings. First, the wicked who pray. That's P-R-E-Y. The wicked who pray. P-R-E-Y. And second, the righteous who pray. That's P-R-A-Y. The righteous who pray. P-R-A-Y. Let's first consider the wicked who pray. P-R-E-Y. And as we do, read, read the first 11 verses. Psalm 10, verses 1 through 11 now. The psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride, of his face. The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit. And oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So I've titled this point, The Wicked Who Pray. But you'll notice in verse 1, verse 1 actually begins with the prayer of the righteous. The author, the psalmist the one who trusts in God is praying to God and asking Him why he stands far off. He, he asks God, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He is lifting up this prayer to God because as you, as you can see in verses 2 through 10, the 11, the, the, the wicked man is preying upon the vulnerable people, vulnerable people. And he's preying upon them in an apparently uninhibited manner. Nothing appears to be stopping his wickedness. Even the the wicked man thinks that's true. Nothing's stopping him. We're told in verse 3 that he boasts. We're told in verse 5 that he prospers at all times. And that he puffs at his foes. In verse 6, he even says to himself that he will not be moved. Look at the second half of verse 6 there. notice He says, throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. In no, other nothing can stop me. For those of you who speak Twitter, his hashtag would be winning. From an earthly perspective, God appears to be totally absent while wickedness is fully and forcefully present. And this is something we can understand, isn't it? Has there been a time in your life where you've asked the question, where, where is the Lord in this situation? Where is God in this pain, in this injustice, and in this overt arrogance of wickedness? Psalm 10 and the Bible as a whole speaks to our human experience. And we need to listen. In the second half of Psalm 10, the psalmist is going to come back and he's going to answer the questions that he's raised in verse 1. We haven't made it to the second half yet. So we need to let these questions hang over us. And so feel the the pain and the concerns of the psalmist. These concerns build from the feeling that God is not active in the current state of affairs. While the wicked is. The wicked is active. Just just consider some of the language that the psalmist uses to characterize the deeds of the wicked. Verse 2, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 7, he curses and deceives. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. Verse 9, he, he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thick. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. Hot pursuit, cursing, deceiving, ambush, murder, seizing, drawing. The wicked man is active in deadly and dangerous ways. And did you notice who he's preying upon? He's preying upon the poor, according to verses 2 and 9. He's preying upon the innocent and the helpless, according to verse 8. Some of these poor, innocent, and helpless people are orphans, according to verse 18. They have no fathers to protect them from the schemes of the wicked. The wicked are preying upon the poor, innocent, and helpless. They are preying upon the world's most vulnerable people. And sadly, from the psalmist's perspective, the wicked are successful in capturing their prey. Read verse 10 again. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. What what would motivate such wickedness? The psalmist tells us in these verses. He mentions arrogance and boasting and pride in verses 2 through 4. Verse 3 in specific says that the wicked is greedy for gain. Didn't, didn't the Apostle Paul say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? Let's, let's be clear. It's not money that is really motivating this wicked person. It's his own personal gain. It's what he gets from money. The wicked person is worshiping himself. He is exalting himself. That's why he's arrogant. He's arrogant. He has set himself up above all others. That's why he boasts. He's the object of his worship. The pursuit of money is but a method for accomplishing his own exaltation and his use and abuse of the poor, helpless and fatherless, are but an instrument for his personal investment. In some ways, we're shocked by this. But we shouldn't be. Read verses 3 and 4 again. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. The wicked person is a practical atheist. He lives as though God does not live. Verse 11 takes the matter a step further. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face, he will never see it. Perhaps when his conscience began to eat away at him, and accused him of all of his wickedness, he quieted his conscience by saying to himself, God doesn't doesn't care or see. Friends, do you really think that? I, I mean, with regard to you, with what you do, do you think that God does not care or see? Added to all of his wickedness is this Subtle attack on God's character and glory. Do you notice that there? That's what this is in verse 11. God has forgotten. He's hid his face. You'll never see it. This assertion protests that God does not see all things. Nor does God care about all wickedness, injustice, and sin. The wicked man's renouncing the Lord in verse 3. His practical atheism in verse 4. And his assumption that God does not see or care in Verse 11 amounts to a functional denial of God. And I I appreciate what one commentator said on this matter. He said, quote, The denial of deity leads to the denial of humanity. Denying God's existence, whether in principle or in practice, opens the door to inhumanity. And isn't that precisely what we see described in these verses? The wicked person is preying upon others because he views them as instruments for personal gain rather than men and women made in God's image. But who is this wicked person? We're not told specifically. He's certainly spoken of in individual terms. So he may very well be an individual that the psalmist knows. He may even be a person that is oppressing the psalmist. The wicked man may also stand for a broader group of people oppressing the poor, the helpless, and the fatherless. If you'll notice in verse 2, the wicked are actually referred to in the plural, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Often uh, Often multiple oppressors are involved in oppression. Sometimes oppression needs an environment and even societal structures in which to function. The fact that the wicked person isn't identified as one individual or multiple individuals or a particular group actually allows this psalm to be applied in different circumstances and applied over and over again throughout the ages by the people of God. There's, there's, there's much application available, there is as much application available to the people of God when this psalm was first written, as there is application available to the people of God today, if not more. In, in our own context. Where we now live we know of individuals institutions and industries who oppress and prey upon the poor the helpless and the fatherless Uh, this past week noted author john piper wrote an article entitled seven reasons not to play the lottery reason number five was that it preys upon the poor and dr piper is right According to a study done in in 2012 by the University of Buffalo, quote, the lowest fifth in terms of socioeconomic status had the highest rate of lottery gambling, 61%. In another article, uh, Palash Ghosh cited a study which suggested that poor people in the United States, those earning $13,000 or less, spend an astounding 9% of their income on lottery tickets. And to make matters worse, it's often the government who oversees and manages the lottery. Gauche concluded his article in this way: the lottery preys upon the poor, the uneducated, the desperate, and the hopeless, and the government runs and encourages this deadly and devastating enterprise. Let us not be involved in preying upon the poor. And let us not be involved in preying upon the helpless. The so-called adult entertainment industry preys upon men and women. It preys upon them. It turns them into objects to be used for personal pleasure and satisfaction. The so-called adult entertainment industry is incontrovertibly linked with human trafficking and sex slavery. It is an industry that at its core aims at dehumanizing those made in God's image for personal pleasure and gain. Brothers and sisters, realize that when you engage with these materials, you have become a predator, lending, support, to an industry that preys upon the helpless. Let us seek to protect the fatherless from those greedy for gain. Have we not learned over the years that the abortion industry is an industry of big business? Have we not learned that abortion providers prey upon scared young women and men and fatherless children for financial gain? They lie and wait and murder baby boys had girls so that they may sell their body parts because they want a Lamborghini. Now you can accuse me of being unfair to that physician who was caught on a videotape saying that she would negotiate a higher price for the sale of baby body parts because she wanted a Lamborghini because she was just saying that in jest. Humor works because it is in some way connected to truth. Lamborghini or not. She wanted something. She wanted gain. And before we self-righteously look down and distance ourselves from those involved in these various predatory institutions, let us be quick to realize that we have done precisely the same thing. We, too, are the wicked that this psalm speaks about. When we sin, we renounce the Lord and live as if there is no God. We throw off His law, His rule, and His reign, and we pursue a life of gain. We dehumanize those made in God's image if we view them as a mere economic unit. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, Jesus said that we commit adultery in our hearts when we lust after those who are not our spouses. Jesus also said that we commit murder in our hearts when we become angry with another person. And who here has not lied? Who here has not been envious? Who here has not sinned against God and against others? The wicked do not stand far off from us. We are the wicked. And yes, we should take God's side against the sin and wickedness that we see all around us. We should identify it for what it is, rebellion against God. We should be angry at wickedness and sin just as God is angry at wickedness and sin and we should be so ashamed of our own wickedness. We should be so ashamed of our sin for it reveals in our hearts a practical atheism. Oh Lord, forgive us. Have mercy upon us. And as I, as I thought about my, my own wickedness this past week, I, I heard a poet say something that has been a comfort to me. He said this, he said, we have all worked in sin. We have all worked in sin and death is the minimum wage. If it were not for Christ, we would have been paid. Hallelujah. Christian, when you read this psalm, you need to feel the pain of the psalmist at the wickedness that he sees. You need to know the anger of God against sin and wickedness. And you need to run to Jesus for forgiveness. For he is rich in mercy. Well, having considered the wicked who pray, let us now turn and consider our second point. The righteous who pray. It's P-R-A-Y. Here we're obviously talking about a different kind of praying. We're, We're talking about the kind of praying that recognizes that there is a God in heaven. And that He's needed. That His justice is desired. And as we consider the righteous who pray, read Psalm 10, verses 12 to 18. Psalm 10, verses 12 to 18. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you, note mischief and vexation. That you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So the problem of the first half of Psalm 10 was that while the psalmist saw great wickedness before his eyes, he could not see the Lord in the midst of it. In in verse 1, he asked why the Lord stood far off and why he hid himself in times of trouble. This wasn't an accusation against God. It was a sincere question. From the perspective of the psalmist, the Lord was seated on the throne, but that was the problem from his perspective. The Lord was seated, while the wicked were up and moving. Finally, a full-throated request for the Lord to arise and do something, for the Lord to assert himself in the midst of this scene, emerges in verse 12. This request for the Lord to arise has already appeared three times in the Psalter. In Psalms 3, 7, and 9. Psalm 9 might be the most illuminating for our purposes. In Psalm 9, King David called for the Lord to arise and to judge the nations. He was calling for a just defense that had not yet come. And that's what we're reading about here in Psalm 10. The wicked are unjustly oppressing and afflicting the poor, the helpless, and the fatherless, but God seems absent. And verse 12 contains the central petition of the psalm, and it is essentially a petition to remember the afflicted. Asking God to arise and to remember, or in the words of verse 12, not to forget the afflicted, does not mean the psalmist thinks God has forgotten. It's not as though he believes the Lord's memory is fading. No, when the writers of Scripture call God to remember, they're calling God to act on behalf of His people, on the basis of His character and His promises. That is why this call for God to arise and this call for God not to forget the afflicted go hand in hand. This is the psalmist's petition to God to arise and remember. But what does that mean? Well, he actually works out what he means by that in the verses that follow. It's almost as if the psalmist kind of pauses his prayer, kind of changes his prayer for a moment. He looks at the situation, knows that God needs to act, and then he preaches the truth to himself about God. Petitions give way to proclamations of truth. Sometimes this is what we need to do in our prayers. Pause, remember the truth, and pray the truth back to God. That's exactly what our brother Curtis helped us do uh, earlier in the service, praying the truth about God back to God. Look at verses 13 and 14. Again. Notice the pattern. He states what's going on And that he prays the truth about God back to God. In verse 13, the psalmist identifies the wicked's erroneous disposition that God does not see the wicked. And then in in verse 14, the psalmist preaches the truth to himself and says, but you do see. He he recognizes that the Lord is seated on the throne and that he is seeing all that is going on. Instead of, of calling God, To remember, now the psalmist is actually doing some remembering himself. Perhaps for a moment he had forgotten that the Lord sees. This this happens to us too, doesn't it? We sometimes momentarily forget the truth about God when we are burdened by sin's heavy load. We sometimes momentarily forget the truth about God when wickedness appears to be chaotically running and ruining the world. Apparently unchecked. The psalmist says that the Lord sees. And what does he say the Lord sees? He says that the Lord sees mischief and vexation caused by the wicked. And then there's that that wonderful little word, that, in the middle of verse 14. That's a purpose statement. The Lord sees that he may take the matter into his hands. It may feel as though the Lord is standing far off, but he's actually watching closely. The Lord is watching this wickedness with purpose so that he may judge it. The delay of God's judgment upon the wicked may feel unbearable. And perhaps that is why the psalmist continues in verse 14 by saying to you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. This is what the people of God do when oppressed. They commit themselves to God. What, what did Peter say about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23? He said this, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father to the point of death and through death. Later on in 1 Peter, Peter's actually going to bring this thought full circle is thought of committing ourselves to God or entrusting ourselves by saying this, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. This is what the righteous do. This is what the afflicted and the fatherless do in the face of wickedness. We pray, asking God to arise, and we entrust ourselves to Him while we wait for Him to act. The delay of God sitting upon the throne watching the wickedness of the wicked may feel intolerable to us. But friends, take it on the word of the psalmist. Take it on the word of Jesus that it is in the hands of God. He has been and will be the helper of the fatherless in the midst of the wait. Children, youth, young adults, If you have not already found yourself in a situation where it feels like the bad guys are winning, uh, then uh, that day, sadly, will likely come soon, if it has not come already. When that day comes, let me encourage you to do what the psalmist does here. Entrust yourself to God. It may be a real temptation to give in and join those who appear to be succeeding through wickedness, I mean, this psalm says that the wicked prospers in all of his ways. The wicked very often do prosper on this earth. So it may be a real temptation to join in with those who appear to be succeeding through wickedness. But remember this. Their success is only temporary. And all of their success will end in destruction on the last day. Entrust yourself to Jesus and follow after Him. A- ask your parents or a mature Christian friend why their hope is not ultimately in this world, but in the next. That would be a good conversation to have this afternoon or this evening. Uh, th- there, are, there are two things that this psalm teaches us to do while waiting upon the Lord to arise and act. The first we saw there in verse 12, prayer. The second we saw in verse 14, a reminder to trust the Lord. And verses 15 through 18 they, it build upon these two lessons. Verse 15 tells us what the psalmist prayed. And verses 16 through 18 tell us why. Why he. Why, why the poor. Why the helpless. Why the fatherless. Could entrust themselves to God. First let's look at what he prays. You know when, when I first read this psalm. I was startled by what the psalmist prayed in verse 15. He prayed, Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Can we pray this prayer? Can we pray for the Lord to break the arm of the the government and companies who run lotteries and and gambling schemes that prey upon the poor? Can we we pray for the Lord to break the arm of of, of abortion providers who prey upon the fatherless? Can we pray for the Lord to break the arm of the so-called adult entertainment industry who support human trafficking and sex slavery and pray upon the helpless? Can we pray for the Lord to break their arm and call their wickedness to account till their wickedness is no more? Well, When will their wickedness be no more? Listen to how Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 to 18 answers that question. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Only when the Lord Jesus returns on the last day to judge the living and the dead. Will the prayer of Psalm 1015 be fully answered. Only on that day will the wicked, will the destroyers be destroyed we can and should pray this prayer think about this brothers and sisters the praying of the wicked comes to an end by the righteous praying come Lord Jesus come and by the father answering that prayer and sending his son pray that our king would come And while we pray, we must remember the model of the psalmist here. It is our job to pray, and it is God's job to act. During our time on earth, the Lord may choose to act in ways that provide a preview of His final judgment, like He did in the flood, like He did in Sodom and Gomorrah, like He did amongst Egypt and amongst the people of Israel, as we thought about earlier. In other words, the Lord might be pleased to give partial judgments against wickedness. We can and even should pray for that. For those glimpses of his final justice, we should be grateful, but unsatisfied that Jesus has not yet returned to fully and finally right all wrongs. We should also learn from the psalmist in verses 16 to 18. What is the ground of our confidence and assurance that God will answer our prayers? Read verses 16 to 18 of Psalm 10 again. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. How can we be sure that God will hear and answer the prayers of the righteous, of those who trust in him? We can be sure because he is king forever and ever. He has not and will not give up his right to reign. The king of heaven will one day see to it that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. His delay is his decision. And while he delays his judgment, those who trust in him are to pray, to plead, and to patiently wait, knowing that he gives strength to our hearts. We are to wait knowing that he inclines his ear. He is a father who is ready to listen to the prayers of his children. So pray. He hears our prayers, and he will one day fully and finally answer them. God's decision to delay also opens the door for repentance. Friends, we all need to repent of our wickedness and come to God for mercy and forgiveness. Friends, the Bible and Psalm 10 teaches us that the wickedness of the wicked will come to an end because God will call His wickedness to account. This psalm presents us with a choice We either renounce God, verse 13, or we commit ourselves to God, verse 14. Friend, where do you stand with God? The truth is, is that we have all rebelled against God. We have all been His enemies. We have all worked in sin. We have all decided that we want to throw off His authority and live our own way. And this is what the Bible fundamentally calls sin. Sin is living our way rather than God's way. It is an attempt to set up our own authoritative throne opposite God's, or even better over his. It is this rebellion which makes us God's enemies, and it makes us the wicked, whom this song speaks about, speaks about. It is this rebellion that angers God, and rightly so for He has given us life and breath. And we have chosen to use our God-given lives, gifts, and abilities to reject Him. We've lied and cheated and stolen and lusted and murdered others in our hearts. These offenses and others are offenses against the eternal God, which all deserve an eternal punishment. And that is what hell is. And we all stand in danger of facing God's terrifying wrath for all eternity. And still, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 10 that there is hope for God's enemies. There's hope for people like you and me. God sent his son to live and to die for his enemies so that they might be reconciled to God. God invites us to love him, to know him, to worship him and serve him and trust him as Psalm chapter 10 verse 14 makes clear. God invites us to know his divine favor and blessing by laying down our arms of war rather than having them broken and taking refuge in his one and only most beloved son and in his arms. In love, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man and He lived the life that we have not. The life of perfect obedience and love toward God the Father. He never preyed upon the poor, the helpless, the weak. His life was completely absent of all wickedness and sin. And unlike us, every thought of Jesus, every word and deed of His was righteous. And yet Jesus died. On the cross, Jesus took the sins and the punishment for all of those who would have returned from their sin and put their faith in Him. Jesus substituted Himself for sinners and took their punishment. He took and bore in His body on the tree the eternal wrath of God. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him. And proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight and accepted by him. Friend, Jesus says to you, do not have your arms broken on the last day. I have stretched out my arms for you so that you might be received into heaven. Friend, come to the Lord Jesus in faith. Come, avoid the terror of God's wrath and know God's eternal blessing and favor. Turn from your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about what it means to come to the Lord Jesus, uh, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's, There's nothing more important that you can think about than what it means. To take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should conclude. I I began this sermon by confessing to you. That while I'm I'm over the new year. I'm more confident and expectant than ever. I'm I'm over the new year in this world. And I am ready for this world to be renewed. Psalm 10 is such a help to me. and, And I hope to you too. For it tells us how we can live in a world filled with wickedness. We can live in trusting ourselves to God because he is the king who reigns. And who is coming to make all things new. So brothers and sisters, while the wicked pray. Let us trust and pray. Come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together.